our loving Father and our Redeemer. Uh, We ask that you would help us now to see the glory of Christ uh, in these your words from your servant David. And help us in response to live lives that praise and glorify him uh, and uh, live our lives in obedience and in thankfulness uh, to the gospel of grace that you have demonstrated to us in him. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen. Um, Now, I think I said in my first sermon here that I am a massive nerd. And I'm repeating that claim. And one of the aspects of my nerdity is I like to buy very many books. And this is a great trouble for my wife, but today, in fact, this week, it is a source of great joy because she's able to claim back some of the money on the tax returns. So it's it's not all bad. Um, But when you read fiction books, there's usually a three-act narrative structure, isn't it? You are introduced to your characters, you then introduce a problem, you increase the tension, and then you resolve the tension, and then everything is happily ever after. Maybe you saw Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast did this fantastically. You introduce your colorful characters, very colorful, some of them, uh, and then you introduce the tension, uh, you ratchet up the tension, and you see there's, there's the tension of the beast, there's the tension of the kidnap, there's the tension of the attempted murder, there's the tension of the sorcery and the witchcraft, there's the tension of whether or not Emma Watson can sing. And <laughs> all of these things build up. Um, and Towards the end of the film, what happens is all of that tension, like every story, is resolved. And we get a happy ending. The story reaches a climax very quickly in about 10 minutes. The beast is transformed uh, into this pretty normal-looking bloke. Um, Or about as normal as you can look when you're headlining a $100 million Disney movie. Um, So he turns back to normal. The spell is gone. uh, And then... Uh, They dance, they get married, uh, there's happily ever after, and then the story finishes and we leave the cinema. Everything happens very fast. That's normal story structure. But when we look at the second half of this psalm today, we might ask whether David has a very weak sense of narrative tension. Because this psalm continues way after the tension has been resolved. Let's have a look at this psalm. Now you may remember that the context of the psalm is that David is suffering. He is facing persecution, oppression, and affliction at the hand of his enemies. And the tension of the psalm is, as David looks at his suffering, and then looks back to the promises of God, and then looks back at his suffering, and then looks back at the promises of God, he sees that there is a tension. If God is the true God who loves David, who's in covenant with David, why is he in suffering? And so the question that starts the psalm is, not why am I suffering, but why have you forsaken me? And so perhaps we might anticipate that the way the psalm would end is the happy ending when David is taken out of his suffering, when that tension is resolved. But that's a very dissatisfactory conclusion to this psalm. It's dissatisfactory to our understanding of suffering. Because the question might still remain, God, why did you allow the suffering in the first place? Why did you ordain David's suffering? What what was the point of it? And it may not be enough to say, well, everything was all right in the end. David was better off at the end than at the beginning. All's well that ends well. 
No, suffering is, is real, it's, it's painful, and it requires, I think, a better, a deeper, a more profound explanation. And I think the understanding of this problem illuminates why there is an extra 10 verses at the end of the psalm after David says in verse 21b, you have rescued me. David's rescued. Why is there another 10 verses? Because I think we need to answer that fundamental question. So, I want you to have a look at verses, uh, verses 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now, what I want you to see here is that there is something of a parallelism that's going on in these verses. Okay, there's a doublet, which is two lines, which are similar, followed by a triplet. So there you go on the screen. Now, I want you to show the next slide, please. Now, can you see that in each line there is a reference to the congregation, uh, the people of God. So there you go. To my brothers, that's the people of God, in the midst of the congregation, you who fear the Lord, it's the same body of people, offspring of Jacob, offspring of Israel. They're all repeated in every single line. Let's go to the next one. What's the other parallelism? I will praise you, praise him, glorify him, stand in awe of him. The heart of this uh, part of the psalm is showing that the climax, the end, is not David's vindication, but it is the worship, the glory, the praise of God. The climax of this psalm is not the salvation of David, but the worship of David's God. That's what's happening here. Now, this is essential, isn't it, to our understanding of the problem of suffering, to the problem of evil, to the problem of the fall, because actually, if we see history as the grand narrative of which God is the author, then, then the, the goal of that is not the salvation of the sinner, but it is the worship of the Savior. God's salvation leads to the ultimate end, which is worship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism expresses it in the first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The climax of history is not salvation, but worship of the Savior. And I think there are three reasons that are given here to worship in this psalm. And they are kind of sandwiched in the middle uh, of the sections that I've given. So if you look on your outline, you've got verses 22 to 26. And in the middle is, is verse 24, so kind of like the meat in the sandwich. Uh, the same thing with 27 to 29, that 28 is, is like the meat. And I want you to, I want you to see here uh, what I think is going on. Look in 22 and 23, you've got... Uh, a reference to the congregation, two references to praising, a reference to fearing the Lord, and again, those things are repeated in verses 25 and 26. See, the great congregation again. Two references to praise, uh, referencing to fearing the Lord. These two bits, 22, 23, stand with 25 and 26 as like the bread of the sandwich. And in the middle, you've got this. The explanation, the reason, the motivation for the praise. 
He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See, God, uh, David said in the beginning, isn't it, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. And now in the heart of this, the call to praise is that God has been faithful to David. God was not far from him. God did hear his cries. God did not forsake him. And so the heart of the, the worship here is that God is, is faithful to his people. He was faithful to David. And I want you to see next is that that faithfulness is the motivation for the praise of the rest of Israel, but it develops actually in verses 25 and 26. So look down at, at 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Now again, there, there's parallelism, parallelism that's happening here, okay? So just go to the next slide. Again, we've got references, the great congregation, those who fear him, the afflicted, those who seek him. It's talking about the people of God who are motivated to praise. And then the next, praise, I will perform vows, eat and be satisfied, shall praise. Now, what's the vows? What are the vows? Well, in the book of Leviticus, if, if you were in a deep a situation of trouble, what you would do is you might cry out to God and you say, God, if you rescue me, if you vindicate me, if you save me, what I will do is I will perform my vow offering. I will bring an offering to you in your temple and I will make known to everyone that you have saved me, that you are the God of my salvation. This thing was a public act. It was a declaration that God was faithful, uh, that, that he had vindicated you, and it was to make his name known, to praise him amongst the people. And what you would do is you would bring your food, you would bring your animal, you would sacrifice your animal, and then what everyone would do is they would eat, they would partake of that animal. You would have a meal, you would makan together to, to share your solidarity in this vow offering. This is probably a good reason why Malaysians were not chosen to be Israelites, isn't it? <laughs> Correct? Because what would we do? We think, ah, okay, we will find a very rich fella, we will oppress him and persecute him until he makes a vow offering. And then when the oppression is taken away, then we can all have a big makan, okay? A big free makan. But notice here what, what's happening, isn't it? Look at verse um, 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Now, who was the afflicted before? The afflicted is, in verse 24, David, isn't it? You have not despised or abhorred the affliction of your afflicted. David is the one who is afflicted. And now what he does is, as he offers his praise to God, he offers his vow offering so that all of the afflicted of the people can partake of that blessing. It's a corporate thing. Um, but also notice that as they partake... In, the, in that meal together, they also share in the joy of being vindicated by God. Okay? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. So it's not just nom, nom, nom. Mmm, I got a nice full, full belly. But those who seek him shall praise the Lord. 
That is, as they are hungry, as they are afflicted, as they are poor, and as they enjoy in this meal, they are enjoying something of God's covenant faithfulness that David also enjoyed. David, in a way, is the exemplar of God's vindication, and now he mediates that to the people, to the afflicted. Now, this is like Jesus, isn't it? This is just like Jesus. In fact, verse 22 of this psalm is is applied about Jesus by the author of Hebrews. He says that um, Jesus, putting the words on Jesus' lips, I will tell of your name to my brothers, saying that, that Jesus was unashamed to identify himself with us, to be united with us, to take on our flesh, and to suffer with us. Um, that, that Jesus knew what it was like to be afflicted. He shares in our affliction. He identifies with us. And so when we think about suffering, and we think about how God relates to that suffering, we do so knowing, isn't it, that, that God actually suffers with us. He's not distant and abstracted and far away from our suffering, but in the person of his son, Jesus takes on our flesh, takes on our affliction, and suffers with us. He identifies himself with our suffering. In fact, in in Hebrews, it carries on to say that he is made perfect through his suffering. But Jesus didn't just suffer alongside us, as an example. He didn't just come and say, I know what it's like to suffer, so I can empathize with you. Jesus comes to suffer for us. He takes on the penalty that is our due. He takes on the consequence of the affliction which we deserve. He takes on the punishment of our sin, and he pays for it in himself. So when we look at Jesus, we see that God does care deeply about suffering, not only because he he comes and he shares in our suffering, but he suffers for us that we would not have to suffer the condemnation of God. This is wonderful comfort when we face suffering. It's fuel for prayer. Vaughan Roberts uh, put it this way when he was with us. He, He said, what a wonderful joy it is to know that we can cast our cares upon him who has bled for us. God cares about our suffering. But like David, the deliverance of Jesus, the vindication in his resurrection is not just a matter for himself, but it's a matter for the whole congregation. We all share in Jesus' vindication. Just as he shared in our suffering, we share in his vindication. So David was vindicated by God. He offers his vow offering and he shares it and everyone enjoys that act of faithfulness. But as Jesus is vindicated over the grave, it holds out the promise to us that we also will be vindicated. That Jesus himself mediates for us uh, the the blessings, the covenant faithfulness, the, the promise of the resurrection to us and all of the hopes that we have in him. Because we are in union with Christ. As David identified himself with the afflicted and shared the blessing of God's faithfulness, so too does Christ share in our affliction and mediates to us as his people his blessing.
And this is called to praise. The center is God is faithful to his people, and the outside is a call to praise. In the resurrection of Christ, we see God's ultimate act of faithfulness. We have the assurance that this applies to us by faith. And since Christ did not just suffer, but suffered for us, then those who are united to him by faith are presently partakers of, of, of his benefits, of his goodness. And one day we will experience this in entirety. If you were in Israel, you could look at David and know that God was faithful. If you are here today and you trust in Christ and you see in the resurrection that there is hope after the grave, that you will not face condemnation, that you will rise in glory and live to worship God forever, then, then you, um, you see in him that hope of glory, that reason for worship, that reason for praise. Let's have a look at uh, verses 27 to 29. Okay, verses 27 to 29. Again, what we've got is we've got the parallelism, isn't it? We've got all the ends of the earth, uh, all the families of the nations, all the prosperous of the earth, all who go down to the dust. Uh, and again, these people are going to worship, isn't it? All of the nations will worship God. Uh, all the families of the nations will, will worship him. People will eat and worship. They will bow down. And at the center of this, in verse 28, is that kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, why does this fit in here? Why is it that we've got a narrative of David's suffering, David's vindication, and suddenly we're, we're talking about the nations? Isn't that a bit strange? Well, if we understand biblical history, this is not very weird. Abraham was called to be a blessing for the nations. Israel was called to be set apart for the sake of the nations. And David, in one sense, as the king of Israel, is also set apart for God's ultimate plan of world mission, for, vindic uh, for saving uh, the nations, for gathering the nations in to worship. Now, this never really happens to David, is it? The nations don't turn to David. We see a glimmer of it with Solomon when the Queen of Sheba comes and, and, and comes to uh, see Solomon and to worship his God. So this isn't fulfilled by David, but David, I think, is speaking prophetically. He's pointing forward. Uh, he's showing us uh, what will happen when God's ultimate king is vindicated, that the nations will then turn to him and will worship uh, the Lord God. And we see that with Christ, isn't it? When Christ is vindicated, when he is raised from the grave, when he is ascended upon high, what is the command that goes out? Go and make disciples of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we should know this because this is like the cathedral mission statement, isn't it? Or the vision statement. I, I can't remember which one round it is. It's, it's generally very good that our church's mission statement is the same as what Jesus said, isn't it? Go and make disciples of all nations. I think that's encouraging. Um, but Paul interprets this, isn't it? He says that God is the God of all nations. And that therefore, idolatry, that people don't worship God, is, is the chief problem. It's the most profound problem in this world. It's not fundamentally that people are lost, although that is deeply troubling and despairing. 
but it is that God, who is infinitely glorious, who deserves all worship and praise and honor, is denied his glory. God is denied worship. And, and what Paul says is that God has set aside a time, uh, uh, fixed a day upon which he will judge the world for idolatry. And he is given assurance that he will do this by raising Jesus from the dead. The sign of the resurrection shows to us that God has vindicated his king and that all people from all tribes, languages, tongues, and nations are called to turn to Jesus and to worship him. This is the motivation for the call of mission, that Jesus is worthy of worship. He's worthy of glory. And that's what we saw in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, the, the great picture at the end is all of the church, all of the tribes, all of the tongues, all of the nations are turned and saying, praise and glory be unto the Lamb. He is worthy because he was slain. He wins his church, he wins people from all over the world. And so this is our mission. This is our mission. It's not primarily man-motivated, but it is God-motivated. Our core motivation is that God is worthy of worship. We want to see God worshipped. He, uh, as his glory is his chiefest end, so too should it be for us that the glory of God, the glory of Christ, should be our highest end and our highest joy. And that happens when people turn to him in faith and trust. John Piper put it this way, actually. Um, he, he said much the same thing. He said, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And so I would say, fundamentally, when, when we say, why is it that we're not evangelizing? Why is it that we're not doing mission? In one sense, it is because we, we do lack a love for the lost. Now, I feel that myself, that we are naturally selfish, isn't it? We, we don't love people who are lost. And so if we don't love people who are lost, then, then we're not going to evangelize them. We're not going to share the gospel with them in times of trouble. But I wonder if the problem is even more deep than that, that the fact that we don't love the lost is because we, we don't see the goodness of God and the need to worship and glorify him. That the heart problem may be a glory problem. We aren't captivated by the vision, the majesty, and the splendor of God. If we are people who are truly captivated by the cross, by the glory of God that's demonstrated in the suffering of his son, in his vindication over the grave, then we will want to see that son glorified as people come to put their trust in him. And the last, last point in verses 30 to 31. God executes righteousness. God executes righteousness. Let's look at those verses. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Again, we've got the repeat idea of, of telling and proclaiming 
Uh, and now it's specifically a new generation, isn't it? The word for posterity is offspring. It's children that are in view here or, or subsequent generations. Uh, it shall be told to the coming generation. And, and what specifically shall be told? Well, this is the righteousness they shall proclaim in verse 31, his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Now, righteousness signifies a, a, an act of God, particularly when his saving righteousness is displayed. Um, it's the judgment of a king, a king who, who is legislative, uh, judicial, and executive. He sets the law, he judges the law, he executes the result. And so when there is wrongdoing, God coming in his justice punishes that wrongdoing and establishes that which is right. And, and in the Psalms, this is a very big theme because actually all the nations want God to come and execute justice. They say the coastlands wait for his righteousness as he comes and he sets aside that which is wrong and establishes that which is right. Shall I repeat? <laughs> I didn't realize Stephen Hawking was in the audience. Where, where is he? Um, righteousness, isn't it? Okay, right, right. It's setting aside that which is wrong, like a naughty mobile phone, and, and we establish that which is right. Now, um, fundamentally, if we look at something like Psalm 98, what God says is he establishes righteousness, firstly, for himself. The scandal of the world is idolatry, the false worship of other gods, the false worship of other things. And, and they can be things within inside ourselves, isn't it? We can, we can love our job more than God. We can love good things like our spouse more than God. We can love all sorts of things, the pride of life, our intellect, our money. We can love all of these things more than God. And, and that is the scandal of the world. It is false worship. And, and what God will do uh, is, is he will come and he will establish righteousness, but that righteousness is not just correcting sin and, and vindicating his, his good uh, uh, servants, but it is taking away idolatry. That is the fundamental thing that is not right. And Paul insists when he talks about God's righteousness, that ultimately God's righteousness, where he is vindicated as the God over all of the idols, is the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. You see, it's in the gospel, in the resurrection of Christ, that we see that, that God is the true God. There is no other God. There is no comparison. He raised Christ from the dead, and he vindicated himself over all of the false gods. And only uh, him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is worthy of our worship. And Paul says, isn't it, firstly, that this is demonstrating that God is just. It is firstly a Godward thing. God demonstrates that he is just. It is his act of righteousness. But it's also good news because this act of righteousness is not just um, vindicating God, but it is a righteousness that is for us. God is not only just, 
but the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness for us is a saving righteousness. We are not crushed as idolaters. We are not crushed as people who, who are uh, false worshippers because God is gracious to us that as he raises Christ from the grave, that there is the message that, that through his death he has forgiven us our sin, that the righteousness of Christ is imparted and given to us, that we will not be condemned, but that we can be forgiven and accounted right with God uh, through him. And this is the righteousness that should be proclaimed. It's not a righteousness that stands over against us in, in a way that Martin Luther described as, as seeming impossible and oppressive and, and, and harsh, but this is a gracious righteousness, a righteousness that is offered to us as sinners, a righteousness that is offered to us freely as his gift, a righteousness that is received through faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if, if we understand that gospel, if we understand how God is righteous, how he has shown his righteousness in Christ, how he is not just just, but the justifier of us, then we will want to make known his glory at the cross. We want to make it known to each other and make it known to the wider world. It shall be told to the coming generation. They shall proclaim his righteousness. And lastly, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, what have we seen? Well, we've seen that God is to be glorified, that his glory is seen primarily in the cross, that it is in the cross that we see that God is faithful to his people. He has not abandoned us to death, but he has forgiven us uh, our sin in Christ. We have seen also that God rules over the nations, that he establishes himself above all idols, that only he is worthy of worship and honor. And lastly, that God can be trusted to execute justice and correct that which is wrong. And so as we think about suffering in particular, we can see that, that God is faithful and will be faithful to you. That God's faithfulness is not just limited to you, but it is for all people. And that ultimately God will correct that which is wrong and that for which you have unjustly suffered. And he will wipe away the tears from your eyes, that he will comfort you and that you will live ever after to the praise of his glorious grace. The glory of God is not just shown in his creation, but it is most explicitly made clear in the cross. It is shown in his provision for us as the afflicted. It is a cruciform glory. It is a glory that has radiated through the suffering of Christ. It is a glory that we will live today to worship and forever in eternity to be thankful for. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you that uh, you've indicated your servant David, uh, but that his vindication is, is not the end of that psalm, but the worship of you as his saviour. And we pray, Father, as we look in the life of David, as he was um, raised from his despair, uh, that we see in that the life of Christ, uh, who triumphed over the grave, whom, whom you raised, and that in him we have the hope of 
eternal life, that our sin is forgiven, uh, that by faith in him that we can be accounted righteous before you. We thank you that uh, in raising Christ you have vindicated your glory in the sight of all nations, that you alone are worthy of worship. Uh, And we thank you, Father, uh, that you can be trusted to execute righteousness, that you correct that which is wrong, that you did not leave Jesus uh, in the grave, but you raised him. And you give us confidence as well that you will also raise us and you will right every wrong uh, and that you will comfort us in our affliction. And we thank you, Father, that you are a God who is not revealed in in glory that is uh, crushing or uh, a glory that is shown in sheer power, but a glory that is shown through the love and the mercy of the cross. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would be wrapped with uh, a joy uh, at what you have done, at who you are, the God uh, who, who makes himself known through the cross. And we pray that we would live our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.